Hello and welcome to Talking Naturally, a fortnightly podcast discussing birds, wildlife, conservation and whatever else interests us and we think will interest you. Talking Naturally is presented by me, Charlie Moores, a lifelong birder with a passion for conservation and animal welfare and is produced in association with Rare Bird Alert, the longest running bird news service in the UK, and Wild Sounds and Books, a leading international supplier of wildlife books, audio and multimedia guides that also donates a significant proportion of its profits to bird conservation organisations. So welcome to the first podcast by the relaunched and significantly expanded and better funded Talking Naturally. Here we are again. It's actually been getting on for two years since the last Talking Naturally podcast was uploaded. Yes, we are planning to create them a little more frequently than that from now on. But why bring it back? No one, to be absolutely honest, was breaking down the office door or writing anguished letters to the Times pleading for us to try again. But I always felt that the original interviews, which are not online at the moment as far as I know, filled a gap that hasn't been filled since. They gave a platform to birders, conservationists, people on the front line of animal welfare that weren't being heard but who deserved to be. That's how I saw it anyway, and fortunately, that's how Rare Bird Alert and Duncan MacDonald of Wild Sounds and Books saw it too. A brief chat in March of this year about how good it might be to prod talking naturally out of its long hibernation turned into a flurry of emails and phone calls. And here we are, the first podcast in a new series of Talking Naturally. And it's an extended podcast too, free to listen to and always will be. And it features interviews with David Lindo, perhaps better known as the Urban Birder, with Butterfly Conservation, with Bernard Bishop, who's been involved with a wonderful Cly Reserve for 60 years, and with Tom Raven. Tom Raven, you ask? Well, if you've recently made a trip to see a certain godwit on the Somerset levels, he's the man who saw it first. That's not all. Brian, Duncan and myself decided to get together in Norfolk. Other counties are available, of course, but it's where RBA and Wild Sounds are both based to chat about why we wanted to work together and what we hoped these podcasts would do. I had a digital recorder with me. You never know who you might bump into along the Norfolk coast and recorded our conversation. Some of it is unrepeatable. Some of it wouldn't be of interest to an audience, but some of it was entertaining and just good fun. So what I've done is weave in and out of that conversation, drop in the interviews I mentioned just a moment ago and edit the whole thing up into what I hope is a coherent whole. We're calling it Talking Naturally's Norfolk Adventure Part 1 because, and there are no prizes for anyone who's already worked this out, We'll be carrying some of the conversation over to part two and doing pretty much the same thing again in a couple of weeks. So in the best traditions of setting the scene, we three met up in a beautiful garden in Salthouse, Norfolk on a sunny spring morning and began to talk about podcasts. I've come across from Wiltshire and I'm sitting in a rather lovely garden with the sea hidden by a shed, but it's just over the wall over there. 
Black Cap singing in the background. We haven't put this on tapes. Very genuine. Oh, I'm Charlie Moores, and I am with two fine Norfolk residents. Hi, Charlie. It's uh, Brian Egan here from Rare Bird Alert. Hi, Duncan MacDonald from Wild Sounds and Books. So why are we doing these podcasts? Well, Charlie, um, when you previously produced Talking Naturally, Rare Bird Alert and all the staff at Rare Bird Alert were super keen listeners. We look forward to it. And we felt it's it's something that we should be um, getting involved with, the, the kinds of things you were talking about, uh, the subjects you're covering and the people you're talking to are all the kinds of things that birders are interested in. And we... We look after birders, we supply them with information about birds turning up, but they've got varied interests in all sorts of things beyond birds, and, and you were covering those things, and so we thought it would be fantastic to revive it with you and, and get it going again, and uh, and hopefully create the kinds of stuff that you were doing previously. Which hopefully was the appeal for you, Duncan. No, that's no, that's exactly right, Charlie. Um, again, uh, you know, when you were doing your podcasts, Peter and I and some of the other staff at Wild Sounds used to listen to them and we thoroughly enjoyed them. And, uh, you know, they were a great break in the day to have a listen to those. And so we'd like them to really continue. If only I knew then that I had an audience. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> We were your two in Norfolk. <laughs> no, I think there were a few more in Norfolk that I know of, and so on. There were, you know, there were various people that uh, that were listening. And I think the thing is that um, there's so much on social media about all sorts of other aspects. And I think we really need to realise that conservation message and messages about wildlife and all the rest of it are getting drowned out by a lot of other things. And we really need to, you know, keep focused on that. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard a single mention of any conservation issue you know or any kind of wildlife or strategies or anything like that in this entire election campaign apart from possibly one or two mentions or brief mentions yeah. from the green party but i mean you know it's yeah i should be saying actually that we're, we're sat here end of april so um we're trying to get this first episode out just before uh, the first week in may obviously the election's on the 7th we haven't really had a lot of time to get hold of politicians and things so the content of the first one may not cover a lot of politics, but obviously politics is going to be extremely important for the things that I do with birders against wildlife crime or just birding in general and how it's going to affect the countryside. It's going to be vitally important who gets in. I thoroughly agree with that. And uh, and I, I think that's an issue, as I've said, it's just just being completely ignored, yeah. gets subsumed into, you know, saving the NHS and yeah, the rest of it. Yeah. But if, uh, you know, I was just wondering how many people would uh, benefit from just going outside and just listening to the birds and being in the outdoors and, you know, suddenly, you know, there might be less depression in the world and, and uh, you know... <laughs> it's a serious point, does, it's a serious point. Does yeah, care. absolutely, does it does, it does, yeah. it does, yeah. I mean, sat here today, it's been amazing if people could get this, solve a lot of the ills. Sure. But uh, you can understand, obviously, why the economy is important, why the NHS is important, why other issues are important. But the environment has been totally sidelined in this election. I think, I think, Charlie, the, the podcast will hopefully allow one place every week or fortnight where people can come and, and get up to speed on breaking news and interesting stories that have happened recently. But, you know, expand it into a much wider story as well about what else is going on, not just in Britain, but elsewhere in the world. Um, it's not all about conservation and, and bad news. Um, we hope to be bringing you lots of positive stories. Yeah, we yeah. have lots of positive things to talk about. Um, I know that um, as, as the first one of these podcasts goes out, it will be coinciding with the, the Vote National Bird campaign. Yeah, that's, that's with, happening. With, organised by Mr Lindo. Yeah, who, Lindo. Who, um, who has run a, you know, a really fantastic campaign, I, I, I thought, off his own back to uh you know to get birds into the spotlight um yeah i think it's a really good thing he's done and it's for all sorts of different reasons it's got people talking about common birds and 
not so common birds and harriers. persecuted birds <laughs> harriers and uh, and so you know i think that um bringing it around to the sort of election which is coming up um that uh, people are debating whether they should be voting with their head or their hearts when it comes to strategic voting well you know when it comes to vote national bird my take on it is is that people should be voting with their heads and, and vote for hen harrier i second <laughs> that yes definitely please everybody vote for hen harrier we yeah. want hen harrier as the national bird perfectly cued by brian and duncan there who uh, there's no point pretending otherwise knew that i'd already spoken to david and had an edited interview ready to go which began with me admitting to david that until i'd spoken to him I hadn't realised that he'd not only come up with a national bird vote, but had been organising the entire campaign too. Every last minute of this campaign, the Vote National Bird campaign, has been organised by myself. It's one of those classic scenarios, if I'd have known how much work (laughs) it would be and how much blood, sweat and tears and a few feathers I'd lost over this. I would have thought twice about it. But I'm very happy that I did it because the whole idea was to get people to think about Britain's birds mm. and by people I'm not talking about birders for me this was never meant to be a birding thing yeah the public yeah because yeah. even though the first round was aimed at the natural history world my dream from day one was to have ordinary people in the street talking about it and saying oh I'd vote for this oh I should go. you know cause get a conversation going yeah um, and that is what happened and even though a lot of it's been in jest that's still great because it still means that people are talking about it. And I always saw it as an antidote to the boredom and drudgery of the political campaign. (laughs) You've deliberately planned this so that voting ends on the same day as the general election. I'm assuming, though, that you don't have an army of people counting votes. So the announcement declaring Britain's national bird probably won't be on the same day. Not quite, because um, as of anything, things develop. I mean, for example... We had 60 birds initially, and it was supposed to be six birds in the final. Well, when I saw that the hen harrier was 10th, I thought, well, there's no way, you know, we can have six. Let's make it 10. And plus 10 is a much more rounded number. Yeah. Um, because people say six. What about 10? You know, and over the period of time, we've also discovered, especially during the first round, that not everyone has access to Internet. So we try and make it easy as possible by having voting slips, um, which we introduced at Bird Fair. And that resulted in, at the time, about 3,000 paper votes, which we then had to process. Really? Wow. Um, this time round, second round, we've heard a bulk of this um, on the internet. Again, we are doing a voting slip scenario, but this time in a much bigger way. Um, we're inviting organisations, companies, nature reserves to put out polling stations and then voting slips that they can photocopy and get people to vote. And they send it all back to us. So we're expecting hopefully tens of thousands of votes to come back after the 7th of May, which means that we don't have to spend that time counting those votes up to add to the electronic ones. So in reality, the votes may not be announced until two weeks after the political one, which in a way is good because the noise would have died down down, with the political scenario. I will return to Hen Harris in a minute or two, David, as you'd probably expect me to. But but first, why do you think we need a national bird? I think it's a case of identity. Um, Britain is a very different place to what it was in the 60s. And I feel that it's, it's a nice way, it's a very soft and friendly way of 
of stamping, you know, some sort of flag in the ground that people could internationally could identify with. Sure. You know, you look around, you see other countries and they have national birds, national animals, national flowers and all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously they've got other emblems that represent them, but the, the natural history side of it is a very strong element of any country's identity. You just look at people like the US, you know, they've got the bald eagle, which have had since the late 1700s. You look at places like uh, Cuba and they've got the Cuban trogan. Um, and you've got, um, I think, oh, what country has the clay-coloured thrush, which is not a very uh, attractive bird, but there you go. Yeah, if I remember rightly, it's Costa Rica with the clay-coloured thrush. So not always spectacular birds. And, and I remember reading the like the robin here, which was chosen as the UK's unofficial bird via a newspaper poll. Not always official national birds either. I mean, Sweden has black has a blackbird written down as its official bird, but it's actually not official. It's similar to the robin here. In the 60s, the robin was voted as uh, Britain's favourite, not even voted, anointed as Britain's <laughs> favourite bird. And it actually ended up um, never being made official. Yeah. You mentioned official there, David. How official, in, in quote marks, will the result actually be? Because I've actually read that the results are being passed on to the Queen and the new Prime Minister. Yeah, we've contacted all those parties, the political parties, plus the Queen. We've even spoken to the uh, the Royal Mail to try and make it official. Apparently, making things official in this country is not as easy as it may seem. <laughs> so we have to try and make it as official as possible. And hopefully the amount of votes we get, the amount of publicity we get from it will take this a long way. The Robin, as I said, has made Britain's favourite bird back in the early 60s. Yeah but never made official. I'm hoping that if, it, if it's the case again, if Robin does win this again, at least it will be, you know, once and for all until the next vote, whatever that is. Sure. I'm not going to ask you for a favourite of yours, and I'm not going to ask you how the voting is going. Well, I can uh, ask the first part of that question. Oh, you can, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, because I, you know, I've been asked that question quite often. Um, the bird that I'd definitely vote for if I was, you know, I'm, well, I am unbiased, if I was just, the person on the street, I'd be voting for the blackbird. Right. Um, only because I feel the blackbird, you know, it's a bird that most people can get to see and hear. Yeah. It's got an amazing song, and I've always loved them since oh. I was a kid. The robin, you know, is a bird that most people on the street would recognize immediately or, or call or name. But obviously a lot of bad press has come out about the robin since it was made our favorite bird back in the early 60s. I mean... Not too many people. I mean, obviously, uh, birders and people in the nature world know how violent robins can be. But <laughs> aggressive, surprising. Yeah, surprising yeah. how some you know you saw people in the street and they don't realise that darker side the robin has. Um, but you know that's not a problem. I, I love robins, and if the robin wins this, and that's great. You know, it doesn't matter to me because as long as people are voting, as long as people are thinking about Britain's birds, that's all that matters. So the final vote contains 10 birds. There are some very familiar species in there. Robin, of course, uh, the blackbird, blue tit, um, and some rank outsiders like the hen harrier. Mark Avery is quoted as saying that a vote for the hen harrier is a vote for fairness, a vote for upholding the law and a vote for wildlife. It's the only vote in this poll that can make a difference. I'm sure you've heard that many times. What do you think about that? Well, again, without being biased, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that 
that statement. I think, you know, I'm just so happy. I was very surprised that the Hannah Harrier made it to the top 10. And I can tell you exclusively, I think there's like 300 votes or something like that separated the Hen Harrier from the House Barrow. You know, that's how close it was. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just so happy because, for example, when it when the second phase launched in March, I did a series of uh, interviews with the BBC. It turned out to be the whole day spent talking on the radio to different stations as well as national stations. And the question, one of the reoccurring questions is, what's the hen harrier? And it was amazing because I said, I then sort of gave a breakdown of the hen harrier. And it's great because you get ordinary listeners thinking, oh, really? I might Google that. And then you, you find, they find out more about the hen harrier. And I think that will hopefully help his case because out of the people that find out more about it, there might be an element that say, you know what, I want to join in and and try and help save this bird. Exactly. So, um, exactly. you know, that's really good. You've got children voting too. I mean, my uh, daughter's school is taking part. What was the thinking behind that? The idea behind it is to get kids not only to think about voting per se and democracy, but also to think about a national bird or to think about wildlife and then to off, go off and do research and learn more. And again, an element might, re- might really get excited by it and get involved yeah, in it in the future. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of thing. You put a lot of thought into this, David. You really have. Well, I thought about it since I was seven, to be honest. <laughs> I, the idea came to me when I was seven um, in primary school when I was sitting looking out the window and suddenly thought to myself after seeing some sparrows, what would be my, my class's favourite bird? Right. So I did a poll. The sparrow came up on top. However, a few years later, I kind of realized that my class probably only knew two birds anyway, <laughs> a sparrow and a pigeon. Right. But it right. came up on top, and I kind of thought that when I grew up, I asked the same question. And basically, the idea came back to me two years ago, and I realized that there was, a, there was a, an election in 2015. I thought, why not try and see if I can tie in with the election? It's a fantastic effort, David. It really is. And I hope listeners to this will, if they haven't already done so, just take a few minutes to vote as they uh, still can do that by going to the Vote National Bird website right up until the 7th, uh, which is a good opportunity to give the web address out, of course. It's www.votenationalbird.com. Fantastic. David, surprisingly, while all this has been going on, you've also found time to write another book. Yeah, it's been full on for the last six months or so, or maybe longer, actually, last year. But uh, I've got a new book coming out, which is going to be called Tales from Concrete Jungles. And it's essentially the extended versions of some of my birdwatching magazine articles, uh, as well as a few new ones thrown in. And it's a journey around um, urban areas um, around the world, predominantly in Britain. And it's just, I'd say, a story that really, or a series of short stories that really uh, look at the work that the conservationists uh, are doing in urban areas, uh, whether it be tiny projects or big projects, but everyone's doing a thing, their thing, and doing a big job. And for me, the real conservationists are the people that no one hears about, the people that are on the, you know, on the grounds working away for nothing sometimes. And I, 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 I want to salute those people, and I want to use my voice to to talk about how you know how much of a great job these guys are doing and how much how much that you know they need support from us generally I absolutely agree with you yeah yeah the very best of luck with that david and thanks for taking the time to talk with me today and uh may the best harrier win on may the 7th thanks charlie 
Well, whatever you think about it, that's quite a remarkable effort, really. So do please consider supporting the campaign. In the meantime, back in Norfolk, we were discussing a third vote. Not this time in the UK, but down in the Med. Just listened to David Lindo um, talking about the vote for Britain's national bird. There was, of course a major referendum in spring hunting on Malta. I presume you have as strong opinion as I do on spring hunting in Malta. I was extremely disappointed that that spring hunting wasn't banned uh, by such a narrow margin. But even though the vote has gone against us, uh, I really think that what is actually happening immediately after the vote, and even virtually within a couple of days, that hunters are being prosecuted for killing things that aren't allowed to be hunted. Because as we as we know, the only thing which technically are supposed to be hunted are, are turtle doves and quail. And, you know, they've prosecuted a guy for, you know, for killing a cuckoo. And he's been fined the maximum 5,000 euros, if I remember correctly. And I think that will send out a clear message. The other thing that's also happening is the fact that illegal hunting is still carrying on has, I think, upset a lot of people that voted to continue spring hunting and maybe, you know, next time round, morality will win. Do you think the fact that they couldn't be certain of a yes vote to ban spring hunting, do you think the timing was wrong? Should they have held back with a referendum? Because once you played that card, you really don't have anywhere else to go. It's, it's a very difficult thing. I think, you know, once that was offered, you know, by the president and so on, and I think they just had to go with it. The timing, when will the timing be for perfect? Could you afford to have yet another season, you know, with all that illegal hunting going on? And at least, you know, the president seems to be pushing for prosecutions if birds are being killed, which shouldn't, you know, which are not on the hunting list and so on. Probably going to be another generation unless something unforeseen comes along, Charlie, before maybe another referendum might happen. But I think certainly in the initial stages, it's obvious that there is a, a, a change happening there. And hopefully now the tide will turn you know these big changes don't happen overnight and bird life malta and the work they do there they're in it for the long haul and british birders and and people traveling to to foreign countries need to support them in whatever way they ask for the support from us in britain um i think it's very easy sometimes for us to all sit in britain and and point fingers and and say how they should all solve the problems over there but the people on the ground who are dealing with the locals and dealing with the hunters, responsible hunters and, and so on, you know, it'd be interesting to hear BirdLife Malta's, you know, take on, on, on exactly, things, you know, yeah, such yeah. as, you know, people talking about boycotting travel to those countries. I was just, I was just going to ask you about that, because if you're talking about supporting BirdLife Malta, that isn't a stance that they've ever taken. They've always said, come out here and support what we're doing instead. And that's something I would agree with. I, I would guess you two would, would do I would agree with that. You know, having, you know, grown up in apartheid South Africa and all the rest of it, we always tried to follow what um, what the blacks and the anti-apartheid movement actually wanted as far as boycotts were concerned. The boycott against wine and fruit and all the rest of it was one that they wanted because that hurt you know, a lot of people in South Africa and also the boycott against sport. So I think we do need to respect what BirdLife Malta is asking us to do and follow that through. But of course, each of you, each, you know, everybody listening to this, or each person listening to this, has to you know follow their own conscience but i think following birdlife malta's stance would be uh, and recommendations would be the best thing and and i i think that the best possible thing that we can do is as well as supporting birdlife malta if you feel very passionate about the problems out in malta don't not go there go out there and get involved at a raptor camp and yeah. you know and, and help them in that way and be you know take direct action and, and, and help them out 
because that's going to be far more valuable than than us sitting here saying we shouldn't go to Malta and and let's let's pull up the drawbridge. Uh, when people buy from Wild Sounds and Books, we have a penny pot. Uh, at the end of the uh, on the shopping basket and it's been incredibly interesting to see how people have shifted from donating money to Spoonbill Sandpiper virtually every donation over the last few weeks has actually been for BirdLife Malta and this is even since you know the the vote went the wrong way so people realize that you know Malta is important and uh, birds don't have borders they have wings they fly they make great and you know the whole of Europe suffers basically because of uh, of what happens in Malta yeah Strong views. Do you agree with us? Let us know. We'll be talking more about this issue in the next podcast. But are we just going to be talking about birds on Talking Naturally? We didn't used to in the past and we won't be this time around either. So with a slight change in pace, it's back to that Norfolk garden. There's been a, a massive increase in interest among birders for the uh, Lepidoptera, the butterflies and moths. Over the last decade or so, we've certainly noticed a, an increase in people putting out their own moth traps at night time. You know, we've sent many messages about rare moths and, and firsts for counties and so on. And, and, and the same is true of butterflies. We put out news of monarchs when they turn up, put out some news of, of scarce tortoise shells. And for some people, that's as good as a, a Siberian blue robin on, on Shetland. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a first for them. And... Uh, and um, we all like to see something new. You know, we all like to see our football team beat a team for the first time, or <laughs> we all like to see things happen for the very first time and new experiences. And and so um, the the fact that we can bring news of non-birds to to people is is fantastic. And certainly last year in Norfolk, um, one of the busiest few days we had was when there was you know humpback whales off the coast and longfin um, pilot whales, or yeah. that fantastic pod here of Salthouse yeah. and yeah. Rye, which yeah, then went yeah. all around the coast. And that was just the most, the most amazing experience, just to be able to go down to Salthouse and suddenly see, yeah. you know, longfin pilot whales was yeah, just fantastic. Yeah. I interviewed Tom Britton, head of monitoring at Butterfly Conservation, um, about the scarce tortoiseshells, just to ask him um, whether the ones that are emerging now are presumably overwintering individuals, what their food plants might be. And what he thought about bird watchers coming and piling into the arena here and starting to, to look for butterflies and moths. And I'll pop that in right now, actually. Up until 2014, there was just a single confirmed UK record of the scarce tortoiseshell, a female caught over 60 years ago in Shipbourne near Sevenoaks in West Kent. That was in July 1953. In July 2014, the species was reported from a number of counties in southeast England following an influx into the Netherlands. This year, 2015, there have been a number of sightings again as overwintering individuals have emerged. Is this the start of the scarce tortoiseshell becoming established in the UK or the equivalent of one swallow doesn't make a summer? Who better to ask than Dr Tom Britton, Head of Monitoring at Butterfly Conservation. Hello Tom, thanks for talking with us today. Hi Charlie. Tom, if we could begin with an overview of the range of the scarce tortoiseshell, where's this species normally found? Yeah, okay, well, scarce tortoiseshell, it's recently been renamed. It was commonly known as the yellow-legged tortoiseshell until uh, a year or so back. And it's a butterfly with quite a widespread global distribution, actually. It ranges from sort of Scandinavia in northwest Europe and central Europe, right the way east through 
European Russia and Asia, as far east as Japan and the Kamchatka Peninsula of Russia. And then it also extends quite a good way south as well, as far as Iran in the Middle East and then down to China in Asia. So it's not scarce in distribution? It's not scarce in distribution, no. No, it's very widespread. Is it scarce in any of those areas? I think we don't know the full answer to that in terms of its rarity, to be honest, because a lot of a lot of Asia and big parts of Russia are incredibly under-recorded. Yeah, you know, sure. At best, there might be one sort of specialist for a, a huge country like Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan. On my travels in Armenia and Western Russia in, in the summer months, the odd times I've been there, I found it to be uh, quite a common and widespread uh, species. But in, in the sort of better monitored parts of Europe within the European Union, it is becoming scarce in many areas. It's thought to be declining across the southern part of its European range uh, it's now classified as threatened in, in quite a few countries, actually, particularly in the Baltic. Uh, so countries like Albania, Bosnia, Croatia, Greece, Ukraine and Turkey as well. All those countries, it's it's become quite scarce or even become extinct. So there is some validity in why the name scarce was chosen over yellow-legged. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, personally, I prefer the old name because it's, you know, it highlights its main feature. Yeah, it's, it's descriptive, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think there's always a danger of calling something scarce or common because it, it doesn't really apply, apply everywhere. Yeah, that's why I was asking. It's not always helpful to name a species, especially one with such a huge population after its abundance, unless it's either you know, genuinely rare or very common everywhere. Yeah. And even that can change. Um, it's a species that emerges quite early, which is, of course, why we're talking now, as, as butterflies, again, are, are being reported already. The butterflies we're seeing now, they're presumably individuals that arrived last year and overwintered. Yeah, I think we're pretty, pretty certain, really, that all the ones that have emerged this spring probably did hibernate in in the uk but it does spend a long time in hibernation the ones that arrived last july into east anglia they seem to go into hibernation almost straight away they arrived and and very few of them stuck around more than a day or two so they, they probably went straight into hibernation then and they're only just emerging in sort of mid from mid-march mid-march onwards then by the end of this month they'll disappear again and the main brood should emerge in in June, but then it'll be all over by the end of July again when they'll go back into hibernation. Oh, they're sleepy little things then. They <laughs> are, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, a bit like sort of cats, I suppose, cats of the butterfly world. What's the larval food plant and is it found here? I've looked at that, actually. I've looked at some European and Asian references and it, it rattles off a long list of completely obscure trees and shrubs that aren't particularly relevant to the UK. But uh, it, it will also feed on species in the poplar, elm and willow family. So we've got, you know, we've got quite a few species in that group. We've certainly found in butterflies, they, they will happily switch uh, in between food plants uh, of the same family. I'm guessing as a scientist, you'd be unwilling to speculate on patterns, given that so few individuals are involved. But is scarce tortoiseshell a species you'd expect to see expanding into the UK? 
to be honest, it caught everyone completely by surprise last year from the being just one record in 60 years to a, a big influx. It was out of the blue to us, but when you trace back the pattern of what's been happening in Northern Europe in recent years, it's, it's perhaps not so surprising. I mean, I mentioned it struggling in Southern Europe, but since uh, 2010, the butterflies sort of spread from Western Russia into Finland in 2011, uh, Sweden in 2012, and Norway in 2014. So it's become established in those three Scandinavian countries. And then last year, in July, there was a, a massive migration through uh, Denmark in early July. Uh, they arrived in the, the Netherlands on the 10th of July, and uh, they arrived three days later on the, th on the 13th. So I think all that does indicate a butterfly that is uh, shifting north and west from its established range and that sort of pattern is consistent with range expansion through through climate change. I was going to ask you about that as the countries you mentioned earlier where the species is getting scarcer are perhaps getting too hot and the countries it's being seen in now were perhaps too cold but are warming yeah so perhaps a more favorable now. It could, it could well be. I'm pretty certain it's not been under-recorded in the past because, you know, we've got this fantastic history of collecting going back to the 17th century. And, uh, yeah, so I think it is a genuine range expansion. But we also know from other countries in Europe, in the Baltic states, uh, countries like Estonia, uh, scarce tortoiseshell for quite a few decades has periodically come and gone. So I think uh, one or two people think it may well disappear again from from some of these countries in Scandinavia, right. Holland and, and the UK. It might come and go a bit like the Queen of Spain fritillary has done historically in the, in the UK and other parts of Europe. Get these range expansions when it has a great year, survives for a few years and then fizzles out and does it all again. Tom, back in December 2014, the Daily Telegraph quoted experts, presumably at Butterfly Conservation, saying that next year, so 2015, could be the most exciting for butterflies for a generation. Um, I presume they meant for butterfly watchers rather than for the butterflies themselves. But how are butterflies doing in general? We, we had a terrible year in 2012, and so over the last couple of years, things have bounced back from that. Uh, last year, we saw, you know, a few rarities improve, actually, like the high brown fertility. Some of the common species had the best ever year, the orange tip, best ever year, and the ringlet. Oh, they were everywhere last year, weren't they, orange tips? Yeah, it's fantastic year. But, but generally, I think it's, you know, we're still at a very low ebb. Actually, last year, if you look over the 38-year series of, that we've got butterfly, good butterfly monitoring data, it was a decidedly average year. So maybe our sort of bait, you know, our baselines sort of shifted. Really, we we can't remember how good it used to be. That is common across so many groups of wildlife, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you notice that through bird watching, you start getting excited about things that you know you took for granted twenty or thirty years ago. And I think for butterflies, unfortunately, seven out of ten of them are in long-term decline, either in range or abundance. Having said that, there has been an awful lot of conservation work that's gone on over the last 
10 or 15 years through agri-environment schemes and, and woodland grant schemes. And we haven't really had the weather for that management to, to have a big positive effect. So if we get a good summer this year, you know, we could, we could have the best uh, year we've had for, for a long time. So fingers crossed for some sunshine then. Tom, um, birders. Birders are increasingly looking at invertebrates, especially moths and butterflies. For butterfly conservation, is this a case of uh, about time and welcome on board? Or do you have any concerns that a, a large army of keen but inexperienced observers might be skewing records by focusing on rarities like the scarce tortoiseshell? No, I think our, our general motto is welcome on board. We, we want more and more people to get involved in, in butterfly record. I'm glad you said that because I might not have been able to use this interview otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's easier than ever now to do it as well as sort of online recording. We've got a smartphone app, I record for butterflies, which people can uh, go onto Google Play and download for free and, you know, record butterflies as they see them out in the field. I mean, on the on the subject of a bias, that is, it is an issue, but the statistical techniques have advanced rapidly in the last few years to the point that we're now able to get trends on lots of different types of insect groups from recording that has just been people going out into the countryside. So we can account for biases. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. Through Through modern statistical techniques, we can you know, weight the data to try and overcome the biases. Tom, as we're, we're talking about recording and collecting information, before you go, how about a quick plug for Butterfly Conservation's Big Butterfly Count? Last year, over 44,000 observers logged over half a million individual butterflies and moths from 21 target species. It's a very easy, important and fun count to get involved with. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think this is our big entry-level scheme to get people interested in butterfly recording. It, it's simple to do, just takes 15 minutes. You can do a count absolutely anywhere. Once again, there's apps and online systems to capture the data easily. And, I mean, the great thing about the count is it gives gives us uh, data from sort of people and areas that we just never get records otherwise and over a, a really short time period. So it gives us a fantastic snapshot of, of how butterflies are doing in the midsummer period. Sure. And I guess over the years, that snapshot actually builds up into quite a, an important picture. That's right. We've got five years of data now. This will be the sixth year. And one of our challenges this year will be to try and get trends out of that data. We're, we're going to sort of look more seriously at it. We, we can get some uh, quick headline statistics from it, but I'm sure there's a huge amount of valuable data in there that we can mine. The Big Butterfly Count is spread over mid-July to mid-August, so hopefully we can get together again and discuss how we can all get involved with that nearer the time. In the meantime, Dr Tom Britton, Head of Monitoring at Butterfly Conservation, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Charlie. Butterfly conservation there, and hopefully just the first of many interviews we'll be doing with them as the year advances. Well, Almost inevitably, given the fact that three birders were sat just down the road from one of the most famous bird reserves in the country, back in Norfolk, thoughts were turning to birds and bird reserves. 
The following segment incidentally contains a blatant age-related fib. And for anyone who wonders whether I've really not been to Norfolk for 30 years, of course I have, but I just had to get in a reference to a certain vagrant that Norfolk birders, at least those who saw it, remember with wistful fondness. We're in um, the Wild Sounds Garden here, Wild Sounds Books Garden in uh, Norfolk. I don't get down to Norfolk nearly enough. Uh, within walking distance almost of Cly, talking about reserves, talking about places of interest is something that you'd like us to cover in the podcast, presumably. I- I'd certainly like to. Yeah, for sure, Charlie. I, I, before we started recording today, you were telling us the last time you were at Cly was for a little wimbrel. Um, it was before 1985. I was only about six. Well, I was in primary school. <laughs> I was in primary school and, and it was long before I ever moved to Norfolk. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're very blessed um, to have reserves such as Cly um, and other reserves such as Titchwell and, and so on along the north coast. But it's not just about the, the old singing, all dancing reserves such as Cly, you know, um, people's local patches that they're sort of urban reserves are as equally as important to them as as these reserves are to us that that are on our back door so um we hope to be able to speak to um people who bird these these reserves um and to you know look at the wildlife on these reserves to see what they get from it and and of course speak to the staff and the people involved with making sure that they're places that wildlife inhabit and, and and flourish in making sure that they're places wildlife inhabit and flourish in that could almost be the guiding principle of our next interviewee. I spoke to quite a few people on my day away from Wiltshire. We'll be hearing from some of those in the next podcast. But I was genuinely pleased that Bernard Bishop, the warden at Cly and the third generation of bishops to manage this fantastic reserve, managed to find time to talk to me about a place that, as anyone knows him will attest, he absolutely lives and breathes. I began our interview with... Uh, an apology. I was listening to an interview you did for Radio 4. You were talking about, in the old days, kicking twitchers out of the hides and things who were sleeping overnight. And I, I wanted to apologise straight away. You were one of I them. I was one of those. <laughs> when, <laughs> when um, it was a spotted crate back in the 80s. And it was that very hide there. over there. Yeah, the old, which is now the Bishop Hyde. That's yeah. the Irene Hyde at the time. Yeah, I mean... Somebody was talking the other day about the changes that I've seen in my 60-plus years of living here, and I don't think anybody will see the amount of changes that I've seen in the past 60 years, you know, going back from the time when shooting was part of the scene, you know, the royal family coming here shooting, the royal family coming into our house to get changed after shooting. Really? Yeah, and spending my time with my father, you know, feeding the pools, because in those days, of course, there weren't the wader pools, there weren't the hides or anything. And all my father would do was meet eight or ten people down at the East Bank car park, ten o'clock in the morning, walk through the reed beds, overlook the pools that were used for shooting, and then back by lunchtime, and that was it. And then in the 70s, we started to build the hides, make the wader pools and scrapes. And this is when, you know, the twitching really started off. You know, everybody would converge on the place at the weekend and Nancy's in the village was the hub drop. You know, that was the place to be. And, of course, the phone never stopped ringing. I remember Nancy's. It was one of my first ever twitching experiences was coming to Nancy's cafe and having to find enough enough money to get a Friday or something so I could sit there and book and answer the phone. 
And then, of course, the, the, the guys, and they were mostly guys, very few females. Yeah, yeah. Didn't have the money or the, anything at all, so they, <laughs> they, they slept rough. They That's slept my in, excuse, yeah. That was it. <laughs> they slept in a church porch. They slept in, there was an old barn up on the, at Salthouse there, back at Walsley Hills, where they used to sleep in there. And then, of course, the, the famous place was the beach shelter down at, the beach. Oh, the Coast Guard shelter. Yeah, that's right, yeah. the old shelter there. It's I called the Beach that. Hotel. It was awful. <laughs> well, the and fog it was, used to roll in that's about right, four in the morning. It was one, two, three, and four star. <laughs> Depending which way the wind and the rain was. If you were fortunate enough, right. you got the four star, and if you're the last one there, you went in the one star where the rain was driving. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, we just spent time not kicking them off, you know. No, no, you know, I, I was joking. Yeah, he was very polite. I tried to be, and, you know. I, it, we shouldn't have been there. I, well, I shouldn't have been in the hide, I must have. Well, Clive's always had the reputation through my father's day when it was a very private place. And, you know, he'd catch people on there and you you ran the wrath of his, his, uh, his vocal... <laughs> thing and uh, then of course we started to build the hides and we put the wooden hut up in the corner of the field started to sell tickets and it took off from there yeah and then in 96 we launched an appeal before that in the 1980s we built the Dick Bagalugli Memorial Centre which is our original centre here at Cly and then in 96 we launched an appeal in memory of Dr Long who's our our founder mm-hmm. uh to upgrade the facilities uh, to build five new hides, 800 metres of boardwalk. And then, of course, we just laid the boardwalk and got them going, and we had a surge from the North Sea, and they all the boardwalk ended up in the, on the A149. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we must talk about the surge, the autumn and winter 2012-2013, but I'm just wondering now, you know, we're looking out, it looks absolutely fantastic. There are avocets out on the scrapes, uh, shell ducks, a lot, loads of birds flying around. When you look at this, I suppose pride is the wrong word, but I mean, how, how proud no, are you, you of, no, of what you've no, achieved here? It's you, unbelievable. You've got the right word, actually. Oh, good, yeah. good. I know very well I do a guided walk on a Wednesday, and I explain to the people when they come about how the water level works and how fresh water marshes, and I'm convinced that a large proportion of the people who come here sit in that visitor centre, look out and think, oh, the tide is up, or the tide is down. And they don't realise that on that reserve alone, without the new land that we've got. There's over 70 underground pipes on there, leading water from different places. And it's all gravity-fed from the catchwater drain. And I've got a system of sluices, ditches and dikes and underground pipes leading water from different places. And each of those wader pools and scrapes that we can see can be individually controlled. Right. And, of course, at this time of the year, it's an important time to be doing that because you want the water levels just right for the waders that are coming through. Yeah. You want a bit deeper in the winter when the wildfowl are in. And then once the birds start in the autumn coming back, again, you're fluctuating the water levels, different autumn, so you've got lovely muddy margins, you know, and, and, and not just for the birds, but for the people to see as well. Yeah, yeah. When you started putting in those pipes and thinking about those scrapes, was how Cly looks now, was, was that always the vision, or has, as you've made the changes, have you changed your mind too? <sighs> yeah, I think, I mean, it was never, it was a vision, obviously, we originally made the scrapes because we just didn't have the money to, to spend on them and the, the islands we'd roll the turf up and leave as a high island and then we had problems with vermin on there you know we had rats would quasi make a home in these these like a sausage not a sausage like swiss roll type thing right and then we had them leveled off and more money spent on them 
But, you know, it's an ongoing thing here at Clyde. You must keep managing the scrapes. You know, yeah. we just a few years ago done patch pull, uh, dried it out completely, uh, dug the perimeter all, all the way around the outside and got the water back on. As soon as you start getting water back on, you get birds straight away. It's amazing how quickly. Uh, so it's it's a continuation. You've got to be, keep doing that throughout the reserve. You know, you can't just sit back and think, well, you know, that'll be all right. You're continuously thinking about what's going to happen next year. And of course, um, as, as I alluded to earlier, th- there were three big things happened in the 2012-2013, wasn't there? There was the, the flood, which we'll talk about, the helicopter crash, and the appeal for the um, to extend the reserve... Um, to the east, east, yeah. isn't it? Yes, yeah. I'm sat yeah. here thinking left hand, right hand <laughs> to the east. Well, you um, know it's the east because that's where the wind is coming, <laughs> and that's about the coldest wind that we can get. Even uh, so, it's lovely. Um, if we can just discuss um, perhaps uh, the helicopter crash first. I mean, there were there were dire talk at the time that there might be pollutants from from the helicopter oils and things. Has that happened? Has there been any impact? No, um, none at all. We just had the people from the forces the other day come have a look and just to check and there's no no sign now at all it's just about all cleared up the vegetation started to grow i mean i just that night i i just couldn't believe what was happening it was something that i obviously never ever want to see again uh we were in in our sitting room and my wife saw the helicopters flying around saw the one fly past and then another one and then next thing we knew there was a big light on the beach shining down and then I saw some blue lights appear, and you know the rest of it was what we all know. This, yeah. this helicopter had crashed. I came back down here and met the fire service and took them out to the middle of the marsh, but we couldn't get through. It was north of the main drain, which is the, the further drain. Yeah. Uh, so we came back to go down the beach, and the police were there, and the police had closed it off. And this centre actually became the command post. You know where all right, the all right. the uh, all the clear-up campaign and all the, all the military and all that were, were based. As tragic as it was, and I, I mean this in the, in the right way, mm. it could have been a lot, lot worse. I, we lost those four very, very brave air personnel from, the, from Lake and Heath. But had it gone in the middle of the reserve, down in the middle of the reserve here on one of these wader pools, or just a few hundred yards inland, it could have easily been on the village. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. You know, and and uh, but we didn't hear anything. We didn't hear any explosion. We didn't hear any. There weren't any bang. There weren't anything at all. And our house would be the closest house to the to the site. Was there a sense that it was, a, it was an accident waiting to happen doing these flights um, during the dark over over a bird reserve like this? Well, yeah. The, 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 I think what they hadn't realised is they'd seen the geese on here during the day and seen the Brent geese flying off into the harbour, which is what they do. The Brent geese don't roost on here but of course the last thing at night the, the pink footed geese come in and roost here and I probably think that's, that's possibly what happened right. but you know it's just something that happened and please please let, never let it happen again yeah, yeah uh, absolutely the helicopter accident was in this in January in January, in January wasn't January, it yeah, yeah. and there'd been a huge storm surge which had happened in the December there were some incredible images. I mean, uh, the road we're looking at now was completely underwater. There were lots of opinions expressed then that the salt water coming in could completely ruin parts of the, the, the habitats, especially the freshwater marshes. Um, has that happened? Or have, you, have you seen a lasting difference? Uh, yeah, we, it's, obviously, we lost a lot of the invertebrates and things like that. But what did happen is the shingle ridge 
was pushed in some two or three hundred metres in places. And of course, prior to that, we'd just bought the new marshes at, at Soldhouse. There was two big breaches in the beach at Soldhouse, and I mean big breaches, they were like rivers in spate. You've seen these salmon rivers in Scotland. Yeah, Torrents yeah. of water running in and out. And what happened, the, every time the tide came up, it just came back in again, went back out again, and it just continued to happen. Anyway, the Environment Agency were convinced that they would heal. And credit to the Environment Agency, they were right. Eventually they did heal. Right. The shingle moved back in. The uh, salt water stopped coming in, although it was very fragile. And now we had the problem of the shingle had taken all the fencing down. And the public could walk along the beach and walk into the marsh quite easily. You know, not knowing it was a nature reserve, yeah, which is fair yeah. enough. And you, you know, nice day in the summer. Yeah. Children running down in the shingle, playing in the pools, down by the sea pool, down by Arnold's Marsh, and all the way along. So we put a fence along the top of the shingle ridge, uh, right along the top. A people fence more than anything, because it. It's amazing how this happens, you know, this, this surge had come through and you think, oh, this has decimated this and decimated. But it had made some wonderful habitat where the shingle came into the water, habitat for oyster catchers. It is a natural process, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. and... and we put this fence in, and the fence would be probably three feet high in the post and put the wire along the top. And then we had another slight surge, not a surge like that, but the northerly wind, and it pushed the shingle up, covered the posts up. So we had to lift the post up again. It just shows how it's building up all wow, the while. Yeah, and, the shingles yeah. and it's almost like it again. So it is slowly coming back. Around the same sort of time, there was the huge appeal for, for the extra land which came up, which has extended the area here by about 30%, I think I'm right. That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the money for that was raised actually incredibly quickly. You know, I think everyone was quite surprised about how fast it was raised. Uh, well, how it first came... I had a call, or we had a call to say there was a for sale sign up at Saltos on, on Pook's land. And I went down and saw this for sale sign and you could have knocked me down with a feather, quite honestly. I mean, I've, I've known the family all my life. Uh, the owner was a great friend of my brother's and I've been on there with them and, you know, and I always thought it was sort of in their family, like, forever. And, of course, we straight away contacted our office and said, you know, look, this land's up for sale. And, uh, I mean, I could talk for ages about it, but what happened was we launched an appeal to buy it. And also, a guy in the village called Simon Aspinall yeah. had unfortunately died through motor neuron disease. At and, of course, we have the Simon Aspinall centre behind us. Here. Exactly. Yeah. A far too early age. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. 53, yeah. wasn't yeah, it? I think it's just unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, his family were very keen to do something so we launched an appeal to buy the land and also to, to build this new Simon Aspinall Memorial Centre. Mm -hmm. We launched an appeal to our members, uh, to the various charities, to the general public, to everyone who could possibly give money, everybody right from everybody, worked their socks off to try and do this. Anyway, they, they were successful to build the new centre and purchase the land and carry out a lot of management work on the new land because obviously nothing had been done for years yeah. the infrastructure was very well quite primitive really you know it, it served its purpose they had it as a shooting it, marsh it, it was and, a shooting it, marsh before wasn't it yeah and it, it so, yeah. but we had to as soon as we the, the the purchase went through and everything was fine 
we done some work on the two main shooting pools, shooting pools there, they had them, they had concrete all the way around the outside and wood all the way around, and we had to remove all that and get it all done, reprofile them, and they looked absolutely stunning. And we'd done that work in the, by, the, by March, and last year, the first year, we had over 40 pairs of Avocet's nest on there. It just shows when you do the new work how much they, That's amazing. they, yeah, wow. they go for it. So it's quite an exciting time for lapwings and birds like that. Is the new lands an extension of the existing reserve in terms of habitat? So it's exactly the same, or is there something slightly different about that marsh? The different thing about that probably is the brackish pools are a lot bigger on it, to the north of the main drain, the pool they call Sea Pool. Part of Arnold's Marsh goes with it as well. So we've got some lovely brackish marsh down there, but it is mainly this. It's reed bed grazing marsh. So it's it's just another it just extends it so far and it's it's something it's a, it's an acquisition that I never ever dreamt I would see. I mean right. I'm now coming up to retiring. Well, I'm thinking I'm about ask you about that later. <laughs> about, uh, <laughs> when the appeal was going, I, I do need to ask you this really. There, there were people saying, "Is there any point? The tide is going to come and reclaim this eventually." shouldn't we just admit defeat and give up it's an opinion i certainly never had and looking out here um, you can see why this place is so special and why it's worth fighting for presumably that isn't an opinion you would agree with at all oh no uh way back in prior to 96 when the first surge came the first big one the beat the environment agency each winter would bulldoze the beach up with the bulldozers We'd push the beach up and it would end up like a pyramid and you'd stand on top of the beach and you'd look down and the sea would be lapping at the bottom of the beach and eventually it would wash it away and then it would end up at a cliff face. First storm pushed a hole through it. And then when they decided they would allow it to, to find its own level, and that's when I thought, oh dear, this is, this is the end of it. And I now wish they'd have done it 10 or 15 years beforehand. The beach is a lot stronger. It did breach. But if you look at the old, old maps, that's where the sea came in originally anyway. Yeah. What if part of it becomes a, a small salt marsh estuary and the tide comes in and out? That's a wonderful piece of habitat. In and itself, it's still got yeah. to be looked after. You know, you can't afford to say, well, you, oh, well, we can't be bothered. You know, I, I, I think that we, we've got to just keep fighting for it and just keep trying. And, and the management's going to change. You know, we are becoming, it's becoming more brackish. I mean, this last winter, we normally harvest reed on here in the winter time, and that's, that's only the second time, and the other one was the 96, after the 96 surge, that we haven't harvested any commercial reed on here at all. And it's okay. just because, the you know, the salt kept coming in and it's a fresh water marsh and the yeah. reed just didn't grow. Right. Uh, so hopefully, you know, we've cleared the areas with a tractor and a swipe. Hopefully it's growing now, so hopefully next year or this coming winter we can revert back to cutting some reed again. You must know every inch of this, Marsh. Yeah, I do. You really do. Yeah. You yeah. mentioned there about retiring, and I could see the <laughs> hesitancy, reluctancy, whatever. I mean, as a birder, I can't imagine not seeing a bishop here. Well, it's going to come, isn't it? Uh, I've got a son, but he's got his own... He, he does, he's plastering at the moment, but he's you now just bought a fishing boat, and he's trying to get into that. That's what he wants to do. He'll still be around. I'm still hoping. I've got my nephew and my son cutting the reeds in the winter and I've even had my grandson out there but he's only 10 <laughs> he's a little bit early yet but he's had a go yeah it's going to change uh, I'm now 66 you know I, I I can't see me not coming down here and not doing anything oh, this is just so in your blood isn't it well it is yeah I mean you know I'm, I'm born in the house I live in 
And it is, it's it's just a, a wonderful place to come. I mean, here we're sitting here now, you know, mm. sitting out on this lovely terrace, overlooking the wader pools and the reed beds, the golden reed beds that you can see to the east. People walking around. The sea, before the beach was allowed to find that profile, you couldn't see the sea. You've got a big ship just moored off there, look. Yeah. Avocet's calling. Indeed. I don't want to push you into an early retirement, Bernard, but I feel I should just, again... This is a fantastic place, and your and your father's contribution, grandfather before that, mm. can't possibly be overestimated. Um, it, it's been a privilege to talk to you, and uh, whatever you do, um, <laughs> I wish you the very, very That's best lovely. of luck with it. Charlie, thank you very much. Uh, and let's hope it continues for years and years and years to come. I'm sure it will. Somebody will come along when I've finished and look after it. I hope they do half as good a job as you've done, Bernard. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bernard Bishop, a remarkable man, and I hope, I truly hope, that whoever eventually takes his place will love Cly as much as he does. Okay, back to that Norfolk garden and a follow-up to the question we began this podcast with. We now know why we're doing these podcasts. What do we want them to sound like? What tone do we want to strike? I decided that it might be useful to ask Brian and Duncan to give me just three keywords. Uh, Maybe I should have prepped them in advance. So for me, it would be, say, informative, campaigning and fun. So um, what do you think? You put me on the spot there, but um, to rise to the challenge, um, I won't give the footballers one or three word answer, which usually ends up being 10 or 15, the football manager's response. So I'm going to go for... Provocative. I'm going to go for democratic. We're going to involve lots of people in in the yeah, podcast, yeah. hopefully. And uh, and finally, um, I tell you what, I'm going to pass you to Duncan. I'm going to think th- hard about my third one as it's, as it's so <laughs> crucial. And I, I'm going to pass the buck to Duncan on this one for the first three. No, certainly passion. I basically would like the uh, the passion that we all feel about birds and wildlife and conservation to come out uh, in these podcasts. Controversial, provocative. Other, other sort of two words, but basically I really want us to actually make people think rather than just do some lovely, nice, fluffy stories and all the rest of it interspersed with some slightly less fluffy stories. I think people like a challenge because, the, to be honest, there's so much sort of pap on television that people don't really, you know, think about things and, uh, and you know, question what, uh, what people are telling them about birds and wildlife. And I think that's what we, we really need to do. Yeah, so the other word will probably be questioning. So I've, I've had time to think of my phone. <laughs> um, last night I was, I was listening to a previous podcast of yours and it was on in the background and my wife was listening to it and uh, she didn't know what she was listening to necessarily. She just sort of heard what was going on. And afterwards I said, oh, well, what did you think of that? And, and she said, oh, it was very good. Yeah, well, you know, what was it on? And I said, it was a podcast. It's Charlie who's going to be doing the podcast with us. She's gone, oh, I thought it was on Radio 4. He's got, he's got, lovely, he's got a, lovely, uh, a lovely voice for radio. Um, <laughs> it's sort of, you know, warm and cuddly. So I'm going to go for my third word being cuddly. We're going to be friendly. <laughs> we're going to be cuddly and, and friendly and a place where people can come and, and hopefully listen to some friends um, being cuddly. So uh, uh, cuddly provocative and democratic and not three words you probably normally put together but (laughs) but there we go (laughs) i had to ask informative passionate campaigning fun questioning provocative democratic and cuddly there are worse things to be called i suppose and as far as podcasts go that's an interesting mix will we get 
anywhere near what would be one of the most eclectic podcasts on wildlife on the net. I'm sure you'll let us know. So to our last interview, not especially provocative, not at all campaigning, but a great deal of fun and full of the passion and excitement that makes birding and being part of the natural world so exciting for so many of us. And which just goes to show what you might find if you just keep looking. You're driving home from work and you decide to call in at Mere Heath. It's a well-known site, part of the Somerset Levels. Loads of great white egrets locally, good for spoonbills. It's late April, so maybe there's a chance of something exciting, like a squacko, even an unusual crake. Instead, you see a flock of godwits. You're absolutely right about it being late April. I go out as often as I can. It wasn't a great evening, I have to say, weather-wise, but... You just don't know what you're going to see. I get quite blasé about my local patch being near Heath, Shatwick Heath, Hamwall area. There's fantastic birds there, whatever the weather, whatever the time of year. And you kind of turn up and the great white egrets are fantastic, but they're there every time. I see <laughs> seven, eight, nine, ten, flocks of 12 sometimes. It's just amazing, isn't it, just how many great white egrets there are in the south. Well, it's phenomenal. Now. Absolutely yeah. phenomenal. You think the increase of those in the last two three years is uh, really amazing actually yeah i mean I, I remember twitching that in in the mid 1980s going for a great in fact i remember going for my first little eager in the 1980s so <laughs> things have changed anyway i'm interrupting you and there are far more important birds to talk about so yeah um part, part of the reason i've gone down so often especially this well this year is i've been wrapped up with this patchwork challenge thing as well right so. right right that spurred me to go probably more often than I would do normally. So I'm getting out there twice a day because I'm a little bit sad like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm walking down the track from the car park. A flock of gobwits takes flight and I'm thinking, all right, I've made this effort to get here. I didn't really want to. And actually everything's going to fly off and I'm just going to stare at an empty scrape. And I almost didn't bother. I almost didn't bother looking at them through the bins. I thought I'd better just in case there's something. Why not? I'm here. And I see a very unusual dark bird in with the more regular black-tailed godwits. And that immediately drew my attention. I thought, whoa, what's that? And I just thought it was a black bird to begin with until I realized it had the black-tailed godwit tail markings. But I have to say, my very first impression of it, because I only saw it for briefly, was it's a cormorant with a flock, <laughs> which, which I probably shouldn't say, actually. No, that, that's the kind of thing we need to have on record. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> For every patch worker out there who discovers a Hudsonian Godwit, this is the first thing you go through. <laughs> Thankfully, that was short-lived when I saw the sale. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, that actually allowed me and spurred me to go up and really check out what was going on i had a fear that they were just going to fly off they sometimes do not to reappear for hours yeah. luckily they just flew around and settled very quickly so i was able to to follow up and actually get to the scrape which isn't viewable unless you're fairly close to it it's across a a, a drain and once i was there they were on the on the deck and they were actually quite close so i could really grill them and it wasn't a cormorant <laughs> I couldn't see a cormorant anywhere, <laughs> strangely. Uh, no, it didn't take long to pick out the bird. There was about 100 or so, I guess, maybe a few more godwit altogether. This particular bird, obviously I, was, I knew I was looking for a dark bird, 
was fairly obvious. I wouldn't say it was mega, mega, mega obvious, but it, it stood out. And certainly when you've seen as many goblets as I have, it stood out. So how long did it take you to think, oh dear, this is this is potentially something fairly mega here? It was, it was quite quick because it did stand out. I, I looked at it briefly. I thought, ooh, it's a bit of a funny head colour. It looks a bit grey. His face was actually very striking. It was, And it, I think in hindsight, it was actually because of the grey background as opposed to Blacktail Goldwitch, which in Summer Plumage have a much reddy, pretty orange background. Yeah. So that was quite grey. That was very striking. The, the the overall dark appearance of the bird was clearly striking. But the undertail, the, the thing that really stood out for me was the undertail coverts were heavily barred. And I checked every other blacktail goblet there. And none of them reflected that pattern. They were almost all white or, or faint, occasional barring on the more summer plumage birds. So that got me. It just looked different. It was darker on the back, obviously. Mm. And I just thought, well, I knew there wasn't a lot of choice in this. Hudsonian <laughs> <No>. went, <laughs> Hudsonian went through my goblets. mind. Yeah, as it would. But I, I didn't know all the ID features. I knew what I had to see to absolutely nail it. And the most obvious one being the dark underwing coverts. Yeah. I hadn't seen that. It, it stayed on the deck and it started preening. But at this point, you know, a million and one things are running through my brain. The biggest problem with that area is I don't, my mobile won't pick up any signal. I don't have 3G. There's nothing. And I think on behalf of all birders, we demand a, a mast gets put into that spot. <laughs> What's the thought? It's a challenge. They should send <laughs> some right. over. So you're, you're down there. I, I, as you said, the light wasn't good. I presume no. this is getting fairly late on in the day. The sun was pretty much going. Yeah, I think the, the shadow was over the scrape. There, it wasn't in direct sunlight by this stage at all. There was a bit of pressure to, for me, on me to think, well, I've got to sort out what this is and at least try and get the news out. And as it happened, neither really happened. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you fired off about 100 shots with the camera you just happened to have with you? Oh, I wish. You know, I used to have a professional, you know, I used to have a 600mm uh, lens on a Canon, you know, digital camera. I got rid of that a few years back just because it was spoiling my enjoyment of birding, actually. I wanted to get back to the basics and enjoy birds. So I didn't have any photog uh, photographic equipment on me at all. So you're in a bit of a dilemma. You can't phone out to get anybody else there. You can't phone out to get the salient facts checked just to make sure of the ID. You can't take a picture and it's getting dark. Bit of a nightmare scenario, this one, isn't it? Well, for a, for a birder with a potential mega in front of you on your own, that that's it's not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> there was a bit of pressure, and it was a Friday evening, and I'm thinking, oh my god, this is what, just what I want at the end of the week. I shouldn't complain. It was, um, in a way, it was a kind of nice position to be in. It given, you know, I'd seen enough on it to really think I need to nail this. As it happened, I didn't manage to see the under um, wing coverts. It got too late, and I had to think, right, I've got to go home, make sure I know all the ID features inside out, and come back and hope it's here tomorrow. Wow. And this is a bird that apparently makes non-stop flights of several thousand miles once it actually takes off. So it could, have, it could have taken off soon after you'd gone and been sort of almost in the Arctic Circle by the time you got back. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it is an astonishing journey it makes. Obviously, I looked up that as part of my research that evening, but um, going from Tierra de Fuego to the Hudson Bay or, or Alaska is uh, no mean feat, and that includes a huge leg over the Atlantic Ocean. And actually, it's, it's surprising in light of that that more haven't turned up. I'm going to talk to you about that in just a second, actually, because there's something I'd like to discuss about that. But <laughs> So you get home, 
if you're anything like me, you'd be straight to the nearest guide or on the internet and the penny drops. It's a, it's a bit of a, uh, to be honest, that evening is a bit of a blur when I got back. <laughs> all, the drive home was, was quite short, but obviously about a million and one things are going through my head. I actually got in and I got a vague recollection that I actually made a cup of tea, had something to eat, and it wasn't for about 40 minutes that, until I consulted a guide. <laughs> and I went to Ian Lewington's um, fantastic illustrations. Yeah. And I looked at that and actually, I, was, I looked at it, I thought, okay, that's not bad. So I Googled it. And as soon as I saw the images come up of the Hudwit on the ground, I knew that's what it was. So um, what did you do then? Did you start to contact your mates or just, you know, think, oh, what do I do next? I need to go back and check this before I make any announcements in the morning. Lots of things. I... <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, Ray, but I'm going to. Go on. We can edit it out later if you don't like it. (laughs) I had actually managed to get through to a very good local birder friend of mine who shall remain nameless (laughs) while I was actually watching the bird. And I said, look, I think I've got a a Hudsonian and I'm sure I put Godwin. Can you just give me the finer points of the ID? And after a while, I did manage to get a text back. And he said, oh, yeah, it looks buffer. And it's got a darkish rump. And I thought, yeah, uh, right. He must have been asleep because that's clearly him describing a Hudsonian wimble. Wimble, yes. So I thought, I thought, I didn't say you muppet, it's a gobwick. Because I thought, he's, I've probably woken him up, I, I won't bother. He's got, he has to get up very early in the morning. You won't bother. <laughs> yeah, well, I should have just rung him and said, no, that's not, anyway, look, that's what happened. And I didn't pursue that any further. Back at home, however, I think I'd almost convinced myself I hadn't seen what I was, I had seen, if you see what I mean. I knew it was a mega rare bird. I thought, it can't have appeared here. I was talking to a local birder about this on Monday at that very spot. We jokingly said, wouldn't it be great if one of those black tail godwits had dark under wing cover? So you'd half jokingly predicted Hudsonian godwit at Mere Heath just a few days before? Literally on Monday. And this was the Friday evening. I'm going into the garden right now and predicting Rupel's warbler and hope for the best. <laughs> That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it really would. It really would. So I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, so I'm at home and I've, I've checked the illustrations. I've, I've, I've seen the Google images and I'm thinking that's nailed on straight away. I check the book again. I know what I need to see tomorrow. It's the street neck, which I had observed that evening but hadn't really taken that much notice of to be absolutely sure I had seen it. I probably wrote... Five or it was probably more than that, seven or eight texts that evening. I was doing all sorts of stuff. And I just thought, I'm not 100% happy myself. I can't possibly put this out, even as a possible, and have people come tanking down here because I knew it would cause a stir. A stir. Interesting. And then a big stir. It. A slight ripple among <laughs> the birding community. Yeah, that's right. That might be a vague <laughs> interest. Uh, and I thought, I just, I just can't do that. One, I want to satisfy myself because I'm. You know, I don't want to half cook something. And also, I don't want people to travel miles and then actually it is an aberrant black-tailed gobwit. I got lucky because obviously it was there the next day, although that wasn't the start of the story the following day. <laughs> Go on, which was? What? Well, I got up early. I knew I had to get up early. It was five o'clock. I went off. It was, by the time I'd walked out to the scrape, the sun hadn't got up, but it was light enough to see stuff. I uh, went through all the gobwits, which were still there, and it still looked like the same number. And I couldn't believe it wasn't there. Oh. And seriously, I could have shot myself then because I thought I could have actually really grilled this last night and made meticulous notes, and that would have sufficed probably. Luckily, 
after fretting for about 40 minutes thinking well it's gone it's like you say it was probably up in the in the arctic circle somewhere or not far off there's a pair of sparrowhawks in the nest in the copse immediately adjacent to the scrape and i think one of those must have gone through on a food carry and uh they all went up because they're pretty jittery and it actually well i scanned the flock would it be there would it be there and it was i mean it's very difficult it's such a dark bird it's easy to see it wheeled around i saw the top side i wanted it to wheel around it kept going the flock wheeled right down with their undersides towards me and it was dark compared with all the others which appeared very white or slightly gray and that's the moment my heart just went boom and it almost came through my chest you thought, <laughs> oh, god and then still i doubted myself i st- did i really see that it's such a the- massive call to make isn't it what it, what it is, you know, the third bird ever to be seen in Britain of the species mm. um, still wasn't convinced, <laughs> strangely. <laughs> so they settled. I thought, right, I'm, I'm not moving until this. I see that for definite. And luckily, it flapped its wings. And as it was kind of facing me at an oblique angle, I got a fantastic view of the underwing. Uh, it just looked beautifully black. Wow. <laughs> That's all I needed to see. And then, yeah, my heart was just smashing away. I couldn't see straight. I was, I didn't know who to contact first. I wanted to contact everyone instantly. I wanted everyone to be there instantly so they could share in the <laughs> experience. Obviously, that wasn't possible, but that was what was going through my head. Were you there when the first people arrived? Actually, one of the, the guy uh, who I'd texted the night before and actually got through to, who had given me the description for Hudsonian Wimbrel, he was the first guy I contacted, and I said, it's definitely a Hudsonian Godwit, get down there. He said, I'm at work. I said, let's bin it and get down there. I just wanted to be with him and share it with someone, actually, that I actually knew, because it was a state of euphoria. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't leave me for, uh, well, the rest of the day, the rest of the weekend, basically. Because we're talking a, a couple of days afterwards, so you, you can be cool and calm about this amazing sighting. <laughs> Well, well, it could be now because I'd taken a risk, a big risk, whether I liked it or not, and it had paid off. I mean, it was just the circumstances and how they panned out. And like I say, looking back, I think, you know, crikey, I might have done that differently if I had the opportunity again. But Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, Tom, you may have the opportunity again, because if you think about it, the chances are this bird crossed the Atlantic in the autumn. It's probably been down in Africa. It's staged at Mere Heath on its way north. If it survives, it could come back. You could find it all over again in the autumn. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice. I'm not sure if I could identify it. Might, if it's going to be in winter plumage on the way back, that might offer a bit more of a challenge, actually. <laughs> <laughs> get <laughs> the books out. Flight. Get the books out now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, congratulations, Tom, for yet again Thanks, improving the value of working a local patch. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice. I think it... It's nice because it gives hope to others who bash their patch a lot, and you can get despondent sometimes. But yeah, even in a place like Mere Heath, which is <laughs> sounds fairly that's, that's a terrible thing to say, isn't it, for me? But <laughs> a lot of birders would would almost give a right arm to have that place as their local patch. I know I am spoiled and blessed in that respect. I think an awful lot of people are very glad you happened to be out there that Friday night and um, followed uh, through with your intuitions. It's nice to have been, you know, be able to find something that others can enjoy. And, and you know, several hundred or, or more did so. So that was brilliant. You realise you've unblocked a bird that was one of the very few that I had on my list that Brian Egan didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> I know, so you won't be thanking me at all. Tom, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very you much Charlie. indeed. No worries at all.
Tom Raven there describing how he felt finding Britain's third Hudsonian Godwit. Well, that's it for the first uh, of these new relaunched Talking Naturally podcasts. Thank you very much indeed for listening and we hope you enjoyed it. For the details on all our guests are online. And if you'd like to know more about Rare Bird Alert and the services it offers, please go to rarebirdalert.co.uk. And if you'd like to support a local bookseller that not only offers great prices, but pays its taxes and supports conservation as well, please go to wildsounds.com. If you'd like to sponsor future episodes, please do get in touch. We'd welcome that very much. And if you have any comments about this podcast or suggestions for future programmes, we'd love to hear them. Please email or use the comment fields below. We've got some great interviews lined up already for the next podcast, but who knows what's going to happen in the next two weeks. In the meantime, thanks again and do please join us the next time we talk about birds, wildlife and conservation here on Talking Naturally. Mm -hmm.